broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland. This is Insider's Guide to Energy. This addition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by Fidectus. Go to www.fidectus.com for more information. Welcome to another edition of Insider's Guide to Energy. Johan, this week I am more excited than you to be on the show because this is a topic that has been fascinating to me for years and I'm looking forward to hear an expert talk about it. So I'm going to steal your thunder and say I'm really happy to be here this week. Johan, how are you doing this week? <laughs> I, I like you took my thunder away from this one. Uh, before we came on this show, before I started doing the research around this this was literally something I had in the back of my head. I heard it somewhere, uh, never been on my radar. So I'm extremely interested to learn more about this one. Uh, this was something that really opened my eyes. Uh, and I think this is quite interesting. Maybe not as interesting as what's actually kicking off this week, which is the Euros in football. But we'll talk about that some other day. But uh, yeah, really interesting. Soccer. I mean, we, we can never get that out of your dialect. Uh, you know, it, it, know, it just doesn't have the same passion for me. Um, this topic, we're going to talk about is EMP, electric magnetic pulse, and the threats to the grid and critical infrastructure. Um, it's, it's one of those things, if you're, if you're weak in the stomach, I don't encourage you to listen to this show because it, it could be a scary subject when you first come in contact with it and see what it is. Uh, it really first came on my radar back about 2011, uh, read a book, uh, I think it was one second after. It was a paperback, it was a bestseller. Um, it really brought out the, potential that this kind of an attack could have on the critical infrastructure of the time. Now, it's nothing new. Uh, you know, Electric Magnetic Pulse has been known about it. Our, our government, the U.S. government has known about it since probably the you know, early days of nuclear testing. I think they've, they've figured it out pretty quick. So there's a lot of smart people that have known about the problem, but I don't know that it's been addressed. And, and that's where it starts to get a bit disconcerting. I, I look forward to talking about it. Like I said, it, it's one of those things where you almost want to be moved to the hills. You 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 want to become a survivalist when you hear about all these things. But the reality is that there's some risks there, and, and hopefully we'll hear about some mitigation or potential mitigations that could take place to to prevent uh, an all-out disaster in the future. So that that's my goal to to, to find out more and, and see what could be done and, and why things aren't getting done at the pace that that, that I would hope they are. Uh, how about you? What do you think? And we'll we'll do here. When, when we started off the show and, and we started doing some research, I really didn't have anything. I just went back to my, my very young years when I did my military service. As you do in Sweden, you have to do your military service. And there was a lot of these things, obviously, during the Cold War and you had the next to Russia. There was always a lot of things of what could happen and what could not happen. And it kind of escalated even for a neutral country, which is kind of up in the north. It was always something I wouldn't call it fear mongering, but it was always a little bit around this. So for me, it's really interesting to understand the, 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 what is really the, the, the impact of this one. What is the danger? And then how come, how does governments treat the different 
threats differently? Because is this a political thing? Is this a budgeting thing? The private versus the state? There's a number of things around this I'm really curious to to learn more about. But first of all, I'm really interested to understand what is EMP? Well, I think it's good. I, I think hopefully we'll get there. I, I do agree the intersection of private and sector Uh, private sector and energy and, and public infrastructure makes this a challenging thing to deal with, right? Because the grid I would expect to be public. Uh, but as we move to distributed energy, we're moving to kind of uh, microgrid architectures. And there's a lot of things coming down the road that change the status quo of what's been in place, at least in, in U.S. power grids for a long time. I think, you know, it, it's been kind of cobbled together. It, it's, it's amazing the grid works at all in some days, much less if someone were trying to attack it and bring it down. And we have the threat of cyber coming in. We've, we've seen that. We, we have the threat of uh, EMP where we have physical threat. And then interestingly enough, uh, when I was reading some of the show prep, I, I wasn't even really thinking sunspots were really a thing. I remember as a kid, them messing with the radios or something like that, or TV was bad back in the day. But I really haven't thought about sunspots having an impact on my energy. And, and, and you know, solar storm, what could that do? So Rather than us guessing about it, I think what we should do is bring in one of the world's experts on this to, to tell us about it and, and, and give us firsthand information. And maybe we can make a, a better better decision of what we think after that. So without much further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Uh, Pry. Dr. Pry is the head of the EMP Task Force. He's in Washington. He has been in government. He's worked in many agencies along the way, and he's charged with looking out for these kind of uh, Uh, protecting our nation and protecting us from these kind of critical infrastructure attacks. Dr. Pry, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. So I didn't do a very good job introducing you because you've got multiple titles. You told me of different entities in the government that identify you differently. So maybe we should start by just giving the audience a little bit of a background of who you are and what your responsibilities are. Okay, sure. Well, I've spent my whole professional life working on weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, biological. Uh, EMP uh, is the one that has worried me the most because it is the least understood and, uh, and can pose the greatest threat to our civilization. And I've worked at the CIA. I was their expert on EMP and nuclear weapons and strategy for a decade. Then I went to Congress and served as the professional staff advising the 60 members of the House Armed Services Committee on nuclear weapons strategy, EMP threats, NATO enlargement, and counterterrorism issues. I've served in several national security commissions that are dealing with uh, electromagnetic pulse, cyber warfare, uh, weapons of mass destruction threat. I was the chief of staff of the Congressional EMP Commission that really blew the lid off the EMP threat, because even though it was in the background since the 1962 Starfish Prime High Altitude Nuclear Test, you know, which knocked the lights out in Hawaii, so you really couldn't kind of hide the fact of the threat. Uh, but nonetheless, most uh, of what we're going to talk about today was deeply classified until the year 2008, when the EMP Commission under the leadership of Dr. William Graham, who's the free world's foremost expert on EMP, said, we really need to declassify this stuff because the public and the private sector needs to know about it. You know, because most of what's most vulnerable, like electric grids, telecommunications, even the food and water infrastructures are run by the private sector and they don't have access to deeply classified information on EMP. So we've got to tell them about it and tell them how to protect themselves. And so this is a new threat in that sense that, that, that the details have been 
declassified, you know, only for a little more than a decade. And it was a surprise to most members of Congress. I was surprised when I went over to Congress and started working there. There was only one member of Congress who had ever even heard of EMP. And uh, as a consequence, we stood up the EMP commission, worked on how to protect the country for 17 years. And uh, the commission delivered, you know, basically a plan on how to do it and how to do it inexpensively. And that's the good news because there's really no excuse for us to be vulnerable to EMP from a technological point of view. We know how to do it and it doesn't cost that much. Uh, but as we discovered to our dismay after 2008, you know, uh, uh, that uh, it's the politics of EMP that is in the way, the politics. You know, we thought when we delivered our, our, our 2008 report, which was basically our plan, that it would quickly get done. And it hasn't been done. Almost nothing has been done. And, uh, and uh, that's why we still are around with this EMP task force, trying to move the politics out of the way to try to get the job done. So before we go into the politics, um, as this is a subject I'm interested in, I'm probably better educated than many of our listeners of what it is. So it may make sense if, if we stop and just tell them what the risk is and what the threat is so that we can then carry on the conversation and, and they'll have a better picture of what EMP is and, and how it might work and, and how it could uh, cause risk to infrastructure. Do you, do you mind doing that maybe? Sure. You want me to talk about the risk or the the, uh, the physics of the phenomena first? Well, let's start with the physics and then transform that into why that's a risk, right? Okay. EMP 101. Because there are, are threats, an EMP threat from nature, and there are EMP threats from man. There are nuclear EMP threats and non-nuclear EMP threats. But all these threats are based on, on one thing, physics 101, that a moving magnetic field will make electrons move in a wire. And that's how you make electricity. You know, uh, if you think about how you start a lawnmower that has one of those old-fashioned lanyards on it, and you pull the lanyard, what you're doing is you're spinning a magneto, which is a cluster of magnets, and it's making a magnetic field move in the heart of the lawnmower. And that magneto is surrounded by a coil of wires, and the electrons move in the wire, and it creates a tiny EMP in the form of a spark that makes your 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 lawnmower run. Now, the Earth is a giant magnet. It's got a north and a south pole, and it's surrounded by a thing we call the magnetosphere, a huge magnetic, powerful magnetic field. And let's start with the EMP threat from the sun in terms of the physics. You know, the sun will throw out a coronal mass ejection. That happens every year. And the coronal mass ejection is many times larger than the Earth. It's traveling about a million miles an hour, and it's a superheated plasma. And if it were to reach the surface of the earth, it would kill all life on earth because it's so hot. But God in his wisdom has surrounded us with this magnetosphere. And so the coronal mass ejection slams into the magnetosphere, traveling millions of miles an hour, and doesn't reach the surface of the earth, but slides around the magnetosphere. In the process of doing that, it deforms and makes the magnetosphere oscillate, move around. So you have this enormous moving magnetic field, just like in the heart of your lawnmower which will induce electrons to move in wires everywhere. In the case of a, a super storm, which is what we're really concerned about, something like the 1859 Carrington event, which is the most powerful solar superstorm on record, or the 1921 railroad storm, which is another uh, superstorm, about a tenth as powerful as the Carrington event, 
We're really so concerned about that because it can cause an EMP everywhere in the world that would be so powerful that it would collapse electric grids and life-sustaining critical infrastructures everywhere in the world and put billions of lives at risk. So that's inevitable. Uh, you know, there will be another Carrington event for sure. In fact, in the year 2012, we were narrowly missed by a Carrington-class geomagnetic superstorm, missed the Earth just by three days. And to give you an idea of what it, of what it did, let's see, you know, here is a telegraph key very much like the ones they had around the world in 1859. You know, we weren't an electronic civilization in 1859, uh, but there were telegraph systems all over the world. In every major continent where the colonial powers built a railroad, they would string, you know, telegraph cables. And so everywhere except Antarctica, there were telegraph systems, and they failed all over the world in 1859. I think, again, I'll just show this to you. Look at what a robust piece of electronics this is, you know. Compared to our microelectronics today, this is a chunky, clunky piece of metal. It's literally a, a billion with a B, a billion times more survivable to EMP effects than our modern microelectronics, which are designed to be much more efficient and run on much lower voltages and much faster. Yet these things melted. The telegraph keys melted. They caught the wooden bases on fire. Telegraph stations burned down. The transatlantic cable had just been laid in 1859. And the pulse was so powerful, it reached down miles deep into the Atlantic Ocean and, and damaged it, destroyed it. And it took a, another decade to replace the transatlantic cable. But civilization didn't come to an end because those were the horse and buggy days. And we were not yet an electronic civilization. And uh, the EMP commission on which I served is very concerned that if we have this happens, if a Carrington event happens again, uh, or even a, a railroad storm happens, a 1921-type railroad storm, uh, that it would collapse electric grids worldwide and put billions of lives at risk. And NASA estimates the likelihood of, uh, of a uh, carrying to, uh, that it's inevitable. It will happen for sure someday. And the likelihood is 12% per decade, according to NASA, which is a very high risk. So that's part of the threat. The other part of the threat is the nuclear EMP threat. And anyone who has any kind of an atomic weapon or thermonuclear weapon can do this. You know, you can basically detonate a, a nuclear weapon up in the magnetosphere again, you know, which is above the Earth. It's above the uh, atmosphere. It's got to be at least 30 kilometers high, more, more likely 60 kilometers. Depends upon how big a field you want on the ground. For example, if you were attacking North America and you, det you could detonate the the warhead, if you can get it up to 300 kilometers altitude, you'll put the EMP field over all of North America and put at risk the electric grids and all electronic systems, including smaller electronic systems like cars, airplanes, personal computer on your desk. All of that would be at risk from the nuclear EMP attack, which in some respects, it's actually worse than the natural EMP. Because the natural EMP is a long wavelength phenomenon. You know, it, it needs a long antenna to couple into it. It can couple into power lines that run for, you know, hundreds of kilometers. It can run it, it couple into communications lines, railroad tracks, pipelines. It needs something long and big in order to couple into it. It can't directly couple into automobiles or personal computers or airplanes. However, by taking out the electric grid, the EMP from the sun, 
basically will disable all those things because nothing will work without power, not for a long time. Once you lose the electric grid, all the critical infrastructures collapse. The nuclear EMP can take out, basically put at risk all electronics at the speed of light immediately. The difference between a nuclear EMP attack and the EMP threat from the sun is partly geographic because a Carrington event can put the whole world at risk all at once. Uh, and with a nuclear EMP attack, you can put an EMP field down basically on a continent-sized area. That's the biggest scale, you know, one continent at a time for one weapon. Uh, so, it, so the mitigation, is it the same mitigation strategy for either for uh, the natural event or the man-made uh, event? Mitigation. Well, let me answer that. Yes, for nuclear. Uh, the uh, surge arresters, blocking devices, Faraday cages will work against both natural EMP and nuclear EMP. Part of the politics of this, and I haven't gotten to the third EMP threat yet, which is the non-nuclear, but part of the, part of the politics of oh, this okay. is there's such anti-nuclear sentiment, you know, among some factions that people don't want to harden against the nuclear EMP but they feel more comfortable hardening against the natural EMP from the sun. And that would be good. That would be progress, uh, you know, but it's not enough because the nuclear EMP is a bigger threat because of its, the high frequency fields that I was describing before, you know, hardening against the low frequency threat from the sun still leaves you vulnerable to the nuclear threat. And it still leaves you vulnerable to the non-nuclear EMP weapons, which they're not as powerful as nuclear, but they're all high frequency. And many of them use microwaves. And it also leaves you vulnerable to the cyber threats, you know, which are not, are not EMP, but they work the way they work to collapse electric grids is a lot like EMP. And if you protect yourself against the worst of all these threats, which is, you know, the nuclear EMP threat is worse than the sun. It's worse than this non-nuclear, and it's worse than cyber. But if you're protected against that worst threat, then you're mitigated against everything. And uh, maybe I'll briefly explain the non-nuclear EMP weapons. Uh, you know, those don't have anything Please. like the radius that a nuclear weapon has. You know, they rarely have more. The, the best Russian non-nuclear EMP weapons have a radius of about 10 kilometers. You know, most of the weapons have a radius of one kilometer or less. We ourselves have deployed a, a really good non-nuclear EMP weapon called CHAMP. And uh, there's a technological revolution, which is manifested by CHAMP, uh, that's going on right now uh, because non-nuclear EMP generators are getting smaller and more powerful all the time. So small and so powerful that you can now put them in a robot cruise missile, an un, a cruise missile, an intelligent cruise missile that can follow power lines and use the EMP to take out electric grid transformers and control stations and stuff like that. And you can actually Google CHAMP on the internet and see it in action. And the U.S. Air Force has bought these, but it's the technology is well within the capability of countries like Iran. Even terrorists could, uh, and North Korea, even terrorists could build drones that carry non-nuclear EMP warheads. And so it's a sort of a dollar store way of posing a nationwide EMP threat. Because the electric grid, as you had alluded to, I think earlier, is, uh, is extremely fragile. It doesn't really take much to knock out the electric grid. 
you know, once you once you start a couple of transformers failing, uh, it's like set up like dominoes, you know, uh, the the uh, and uh, once you get a major failure in one part of the grid, it can quickly cascade through the whole thing. And to give you a scale sense of the scale and the magnitude, you know, the Great Northeast Blackout of 2003, you know, started with a tree branch coming in contact with a high voltage power line in the state of Ohio. And that quickly cascaded into falling dominoes that collapsed the northeastern part of the electric grid, including in Ontario, Canada, and the whole northeastern United States, including New York City, it put 50 million people in the dark for nine hours, all from a tree branch, one, a one, one point failure in, in the grid. So just imagine what would happen if you had a nuclear EMP attack, you know, that will cause millions of points of damage in the electric grid, in all the grid. But, but isn't there a different defense? So, so our audience is basically energy industry professionals. Yeah. That, that's who, who tends to listen to our show. And, and we come from the industry as well. Um, but, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. So I, I think the natural event until I was preparing for the show really wasn't even on my radar. I, I, I always picture the nuclear event as a threat. But I also am a product of the 80s. I remember the Star Wars conversations when Reagan was funding that and the other defense mechanisms for missiles and and think of national security at multiple levels, right? And so to me, stopping a missile attack falls clearly in the military and not a power company's need, right? So what the power company can do is maybe, like you said, put parity cages or do hardening or whatever the other mitigation you're going to tell us is. Um, to keep the grid going, you build a more resilient grid. Uh, you, you maybe go to a next generation grid and you, you put infrastructure higher on the political politics in, in the U.S. and figure out how that goes so that we're, we're not working on a hundred year old grid, um, things of that kind of thing. But I, I guess what do you what do you in your capacity say to someone that's that runs a grid or, you know, they run Con Edison or they run somewhere. I mean, where does it fall in their responsibility to fix this from, from a, from a a policy point of view, I guess. Here's where we come to the politics of EMP, because all these problems can be solved, uh, uh, you know, by protecting against the worst threat, the nuclear EMP. And by the way, uh, before we leave that, uh, the cyber warfare dimension of this, you know, EMP is part of cyber warfare in the military doctrines of Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. It's not separated from it. They consider it a cyber weapon, not a nuclear weapon. And that makes sense when you understand the physics of the nuclear EMP attack, because it's not like a Hiroshima or a Nagasaki type of nuclear attack. If you were standing on the ground directly beneath the explosion happening 300 kilometers over your head, you wouldn't even hear it go off. On a cloudy day, you wouldn't see the explosion. You know, you wouldn't even know the country had been attacked until you try to start your car and the car doesn't start or turn on your faucet and there's no water. You know, so it's basically an attack that doesn't directly kill people, but it it destroys the electronics. It subtracts the electronics from the equation of your society. And so when we talk about, I often hear people will say, well, why would you use an EMP attack? Because you can shut down the grid by means of cyber warfare. You know, well, in the enemy plans, they plan to use everything, cyber warfare, physical sabotage, and the ultimate cyber weapon is a nuclear EMP attack. Just the same way Nazi Germany, for example, when it developed this new way of warfare called the Blitzkrieg in the 1930s that overran Europe in the 1940s, you know, they could have won 
just by their innovation of the armored division using tanks. They could have won just by using the innovation of air power, which they used in a way that hadn't been used before, or by using mobile infantry and mobile artillery. But they combined all three vectors of attack into the blitzkrieg because there's a synergistic benefit you get when you put all these together. So I, I just wanted to make sure we get that in there. It's not cyber or EMP. It's all of these threats together that we have to think about. Now, the question about what does industry do? What is industry's responsibility? You know, uh, I don't think it's industry's job. This is the job of the government. Industry is right when it complains that national security is a government responsibility. And uh, that's been the problem. And it's why we're still not protected. Because for 20 years, since the Bush administration, after 9-11 and after the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security, it supposedly has been on the radar screen of U.S. government that the critical infrastructures are foundational to our national security and that we need to protect the critical infrastructures, including the electric grid, which is the keystone critical infrastructure upon which all others depend. But the grand strategy that our government, the U.S. government, has followed for trying to protect the critical infrastructures has been what they call a public-private partnership, where the public uh, is the, the government, in other words, is the junior partner in the relationship. You know, the government provides some information. It stays on the back of the industry. It says, you know, you've got a partner with us as a, to provide national security to the American people and basically shifts the cost, the technical responsibility onto the shoulders of the private sector to try to protect the grid. Well, that's never going to work because the private sector is not an expert in EMP or in cyber warfare or in uh, physical sabotage, special forces operations and the like. This is the area of expertise for the U.S. government. And uh, in fact, I just recently wrote a, uh, a, a report, an open letter to Ann Neuberger, okay, who's the national security advisor on cyber warfare and other emerging threats in the White House. This is a new position. We've never had such a national security advisor position before. And, and one of my main messages to her is that we're not going to be able to protect the grid or any of the other critical infrastructures until we change our grand strategy. Government has got to take the lead. You know, government has got to provide financial resources. It's got to provide the technical resources. It's got to provide the expertise. You know, we're basically asking these industries, you know, there's 3,000 electric utilities in the United States to go out and reinvent the wheel. You know, when, when the Department of Defense has known and has been protecting military systems for more than 50 years, you know, that's not a reasonable or, or rational position to take. And so that's why, that's the problem. And I think the uh, industry and the utilities are, are perfectly right to push back and say, this isn't our job. They probably should do more of that, you know, uh, instead of being bludgeoned into, instead the position industry has been taken through organizations like NERC, all right, the NERC is the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. It's supposed to be the big partner that partners with the FERC, the U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, to try to ensure the reliability. But neither of these organizations was ever conceived for national security purposes. You know, reliability has been expanded into the idea of national security. And the kind of people that serve in NERC and FERC don't come from a national security culture. They don't have expertise in these areas. They can't be expected to solve the problem. Nonetheless, the bad thing that happens is, is NERC, because it's under so much pressure, tells FERC, we're on top of the problem. 
you know, don't regulate us. Uh, we're working hard on the cyber and EMP and, and security threats, and we have exercises every year. And, you know, just trust us, uh, uh, you know, that we're going to solve this problem. And they've been saying that for a long time. And uh, But we can see, uh, you know, from things like the Texas ice storm, for example, that they're not even prepared for an unusual natural event that's not nearly as severe as a geomagnetic superstorm like the Texas ice storm, you know, which happens once every 75 years, you know, uh, or the high winds that happened in California in 2019, you know, that caused burned down millions of acres of forest that actually destroyed whole towns like Paradise, California, and killed lots of people in wildfires. You know, if you're not doing your job, if you're not competent to know that you need to have do better vegetation management so trees won't blow down onto power lines during high winds. And if you're, you're not replacing power line towers that are 100 years old, you know, knowing that that's going to blow down, you're certainly not going to be competent to deal with EMP and cyber warfare and physical sabotage. So the government has got to. So, 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 so you work for a nonprofit. Is that who, who, who employs are those government agencies you're addressing? Cause you okay. gave me a bunch of acronyms and I apologize. I, I don't know the acronyms you're, you're explaining them, which I appreciate, but who's who, who, who are all the players? Obviously with politics, everyone's well, the US got motives. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission uh, is, uh, is, it represents the federal government. It represents the U.S. government. And, uh, and in the past and, and today, you know, it basically is shouldering the burden of, of national security. It never used to be for that. It was never intended for that purpose. Uh, it was it's supposed to, reliability is not the same thing as national security, but we have transmuted the word reliability into a national security issue. All right. Uh, the NAT, NERC, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation represents the 3,000 U.S. electric utilities. NERC is bought and paid for, and, and it basically is their big lobby in Washington. And, uh, and it's supposed to partner with, with FERC. Now, FERC, long ago, uh, political scientists call it regulatory capture. You know, U.S. FERC is really not independent of the electric power industry because the nine FERC commissioners are all former lawyers and lobbyists for the electric power industry. You know, they don't come from places like Cyber Command and the National Security Agency or from the uh, Critical Infrastructure Security Agency. And they don't have national security backgrounds. And they and and nobody in these agencies, NERC would deny it. NERC would say, oh, we do know about nuclear EMP and uh, natural EMP and cyber warfare. You know, they've been trying to catch up. They've been trying to play catch up and play and pretend that they've got expertise, deep expertise in these areas, but they really don't have it. Uh, so those are the, the two governmental players. And then you have states. I mean, it's a complex system, you know, because uh, every state has got a public utilities commission that can oversee the grid. Uh, it was, for example, in Texas, there was ERCOT, you know, that was supposed to be overseeing uh, the, uh, the Texas electric grid. Uh, and, uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Senator Bob Hall, uh, who is one of the few EMP experts in a Texas in a state legislature, because when he was a uh, officer in the U.S. Air Force, he was responsible for hardening the Minuteman ICBM against EMP, and he then later in his career became a Texas state senator. And he's been trying for years to get ERCOT to protect the Texas grid from EMP to do the hardening and all the rest uh, through the Public Utilities Commission. 
So there are possible solutions at the federal level and at the state level, and even at the local level. I mean, if you if you were to locally harden your grid, go to microgrids and things like that that would make things more robust, you know, you can solve the problem that way. Now, th- this year, uh, for the first time, we've got in the White House a cyber security czar in the person of Ann Newberg, the National uh, Security Advisor on Cyber and uh, Emerging Technologies. And she was at that position was there at the recommendation of the EMP Commission. We wanted it to be called a, an EMP czar, but she's called a cyber czar instead. All right. Different name, but basically the same purpose. A, per, a, a person in the White House, what we had recommended is that this is basically a national security emergency. And that what we needed was the White House to take lead, the lead on this and to, and to lead a Manhattan project, you know, like we had in World War II. The Manhattan Project that in three years took the idea of the atomic bomb from being a gleam in Albert Einstein's eye and actually invented the first atomic bombs. You know, we need to do the same thing for our critical infrastructures, uh, except we know how to protect the critical infrastructures. It's not just a theoretical possibility, but to take the recommendations of the EMP Commission and have a czar in the White House, the president, the president's uh, presidential leadership from the White House, to make it happen and to get the recommendations implemented by putting in the surge arresters, the Faraday cages, the blocking devices, and if necessary, to have the government pay for it. It's not going to cost that much. You know, I recommended in my report, for example, that we could allow the Secretary of Defense to reprogram 2 to $4 billion every year to go to protecting the grid. The Department of Defense has a huge interest in getting the electric grid and other critical infrastructures protected. 99% of the electricity for our military bases comes from the civilian electric grid. You know, if they take down the grid, and this is why the, the bad guys are, would do it in a war, our, our militarily would be helpless. We would not be able to project power overseas. And they basically could win World War III just by taking out the electric grid. So, so who does this well? So, so the U.S. Yeah. is behind the eight ball. It sounds like there's, there's work to be done. I, I, I get that bases and all would probably buy power from the grid, but I also know that they have huge generators sitting around data centers and important infrastructure. So I, I don't believe we're totally flopping in the wind. Maybe maybe you believe it different, but I, I maybe I'm a head in the sand kind of guy here, but I, I don't think that there's 100% exposure. Um, but somebody must do it well. So with cyber warfare, the challenge is, is always the guy that uses the most technology that loses, right? Because you have a disadvantage to your enemy using less. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's one-sided, the advantage. Do any of our adversaries have this infrastructure hardened? Or are the traditional Cold War adversaries already ahead of us? Are there smaller countries that are doing a better job? Uh, the generators require fuel to run. And typically... You only have enough fuel for 72 hours uh, uh, with these emergency generators anywhere because of the fire law, lo- uh, fire codes, local fire codes, because they don't want you storing more fuel than that. And because you really can't store enough to keep a generator going for weeks or months, you know, uh, which is what would happen in the event of a nuclear EMP attack or solar EMP or the kind of a scenario we're talking about. Any of these scenarios we're tra- talking about, not temporary blackouts but protracted blackouts that could la- that would last months or years or potentially forever if the transformers and skaters, if enough of them are destroyed. Uh, and, and so 
just having an emergency generator is not the answer. And even emergency generators can be vulnerable to these, uh, to, to these attacks. So while uh, uh, in terms of adversaries, uh, yeah, Russia protected its electric grid and critical infrastructures uh, years ago during the Cold War because they believed you could fight and win a nuclear war. And that was part of it. You know, they never gave, we abandoned much of our civil defense program when we believe, went to the mutual assured destruction strategy. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, they never did. Uh, they've gone, they've invested extremely heavily in protecting all their critical infrastructures, including deep underground facilities for their military political leadership, all kinds of civil defense buckers for the population. We have recently learned that China has also done a lot of things to protect its critical infrastructures, including this so-called underground Great Wall, you know, uh, which belongs to their strategic rocket forces, but which also provides them with the capability to protect uh, their critical infrastructures. It's not by accident that they have foregone what we in the West have done. You know, we have always put into our critical infrastructures, like the electric grid, the newest technology, the faster, you know, like we're going to the smart grid now, which will be even more vulnerable to EMP and cyber attacks. It's a shiny new technology, but it will reduce costs and increase efficiency. And that's what the private sector is supposed to do. That's what the culture of the private sector is supposed to do, provide lower cost, more efficiency to their customers. That's not how national security cultures think. And, the, and Russia and China being totalitarian states, whenever they built their critical infrastructures, the first question they ask themselves is, is this doing anything that would make me lose World War III? And so they have, uh, they, they, when you look at the Russian electric grid, for example, you know, it's got all kinds of electromechanical systems in it. You know, it's not anywhere near a smart grid. It's not as efficient as ours. It's, uh, you know, it's a lot more costly than ours because it has a lot of manpower in it, but it's a lot less vulnerable than ours to any of these threats that we're talking about. And that's why, you know, over the years, a lot of the American people may be curious about it or, and people internationally, that when the bad guys do something like the solar winds hack or they shut down the colonial pipeline, you know, there'll always be people, including the president of the United States, that says this will not go unanswered. We are going to retaliate for this. And then the retaliation never happens, you know, because what happens is when the president goes to talk to his experts, they'll say, sir, you know, we really can't retaliate against this in an equivalent way because the, the, the vulnerability is largely unilateral. It's largely one sided even against a country like North Korea, you know, with its very backwardness makes it less vulnerable to these high, it's not a high tech society and it's very backwardness makes it less vulnerable to these attacks. So quick question, uh, I know we're running a little bit of time, but I need to ask last question. You mentioned this uh, letter and I actually wrote, uh, read your, your open letter uh, to this new uh, commissioner or to, uh, <laughs> but for, for our listeners who, who might not have read it, in a, in a short kind of one-on-one perspective, for this three years period, what would you say are the key factors then to do to start? Because obviously this will not be done in the day. There's a lot of work. But what would you say would be the key priorities for the three-year period? Okay. I'd say the federal government has to take charge. That means President Biden and Ann Neuberger have to be in charge of a Manhattan project to protect First, the electric grid, that's the highest priority, but then all the other critical infrastructures as well on, a, on an accelerated basis as fast as they can. And uh, they, they, uh, the president 
needs to call into his office or write a letter, you know, to the major electric utilities to this effect and saying, this is the way it's going to be. You know, this is a national security issue. I'm using my powers as commander in chief to do this. We will pay for it through the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security. We are going to use the defense, our long experience defense contractors. This is not on you even to do it. You know, we have many defense contractors who know how to protect against EMP and cyber who work for the Department of Defense. And those are the guys who are going to go in and harden uh, harden your critical infrastructures. First, they'll do a, a plan because uh, you don't have to protect everything. You can keep costs very low, you know, by doing a good plan to figure out, well, what are the key nodes that most critically need to be protected within that infrastructure? You know, this is what one of the things industry complains about how expensive it is because they don't know what they're doing. They try to protect everything. And of course, that's going to drive costs through the roof and it makes that unaffordable, but they don't have the expertise. So we need to get them out of the way and have the real experts go in there and and protect the grids. And uh, much could be done in 18 months if we really did it. For example, there's 2000 extra high voltage transformers in the United States, but 500 of them are like the most critical ones because they provide power to the big cities that support most of our national population. I'm sure in 18, you know, in, in very quickly, we could end up getting out there and protecting the critical, those, uh, those uh, uh, transformers. And also another thing that the government could do and needs to be done is uh, through regulation, establish new standards for manufacturing transformers and SCADAs and control systems all kinds of equipment that's critical to the operation of the electric grid and other critical infrastructures. You know, you can design these things. You can design the hardness right into them. And we know from 50 years of experience, of government experience, that when a, a system is designed to be hardened, instead of retroactively fitting, you know, retrofitting it with hardness, uh, you can protect it. It only adds 1% to 6% to the cost of manufacturing the system. So over time, if we change the design, incorporate these design practices so that the systems are hardened, eventually, as you replace old systems with new systems, everything will be hardened. And I would like to see that happen. Eventually, it could happen with personal computers and automobiles. So that someday, if there was a nuclear EMP attack or an EMP from the sun or a cyber warfare attack, we wouldn't even know it would happen. And this can be done painlessly. We have proven as a civilization that this can be done painlessly. Because there is another natural EMP phenomena that we haven't even talked about called lightning. You know, uh, this is a mid-frequency EMP. It's got thousands of volts in it, and it happens all the time. And we couldn't operate as an electronic civilization if things weren't hardened against lightning. Even my personal computer that I'm talking to you is hardened against lightning. If you look at the plug that goes into the wall, it's a the plug is fat, fatter than a normal plug. So. So I think we're at a good spot to, to bring this together, right? So we, we, we have to be mindful of a little bit of time. So what I think the conversation's done for me is it, it illuminated that the, the problem still exists. It exists in spades that, that, that's out there. It, what, what you're saying is that it's, it's government's responsibility, at least in the U.S., to step up and, and figure out how to protect the critical infrastructure is what you're proposing. You, you've taken this to a new office that's been created under the presidency, uh, a new secretary of cybersecurity and EMP, 
And this clearly falls under the, the, the czar of cybersecurity's role because it's, it's a cyber attack. It's not a kinetic attack on a human, but more so on the electronics and things of that nature is what I've heard you say. But w- where I think we end up is the ability to remedy it and is, is not prohibitive. You're saying there's some incremental cost, but you could do some strategic hardening today and then make sure that all new electronic equipment meets a certain standard so that over time, as the older electronics age out of our society and are no longer relevant, that we have critical infrastructure protected wholly. So we, we have a strategic stopgap in your three-year Manhattan project analogy. And then long-term, you harden things up in a way that's through le- uh, legislation or whatever mandate from consumers to have this type of protection and everything from my automobile to my smartphone to my computer that, that I wouldn't notice these kind of attacks. Yes, that's right. That we can, we can protect against these existential threats painlessly and at such low cost that the public wouldn't even know it was happening just as we did against lightning. You know, we're spending trillions of dollars on infrastructure modernization, you know, for 20 or $30 billion of that, that would pay for the Manhattan project I'm talking about. And then and the long-term solution, you wouldn't even notice it, you know, because you're basically just incorporating EMP protection at very low cost into the designs of critical equipment, and maybe even into non-critical equipment, like everybody's personal computers and automobiles. The cost of hardening an automobile against EMP would be like $100. Well, I appreciate that. I, I think with that note, I think we're going to need to wrap up another episode. I want to thank you for being our guest. It's been a pleasure to have you on a little disconcerting to hear about the, the, the threat, but a pleasure to, to, to meet you and hear, hear that someone's working on it and that, that you're talking to our members of Congress and our uh, president and other elected officials to make sure that they're aware of it and, and staying aware of the threat. So I appreciate that. So thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me to talk about this, uh, this crucial but, uh, but uh, esoteric issue, admittedly esoteric issue. Well, thank you again for our guests, uh, for our, our listeners. You've listened to another episode of Insider's Guide to Energy. Uh, if you like what you hear, please let us know. Comment on the show. Give us feedback. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, we're seeing the subscriber growth grow up uh, week over week, and we appreciate that. So we must be doing something right. Uh, Johan, any final thoughts to wrap up the show? Really interesting. I leave with a good note, which means that we can start protecting the new and the transformation in the energy with the electrification. So if we can start preparing this as $100 to a new car, it doesn't seem too much. So good hopes, at least. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, guys. It's been a great show. We'll see you next week.